beloved saints, the grass withers and the flower falls, but this, the word of our God, it remains forever. Let us give our undivided attention to the reading of it. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion, he is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name, holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to the Lord and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain. For the Lord our God is holy. And so ends the reading of our God's word. Let us ask his blessing on our time in it. Uh, Lord, in days of old, your name dwelt in your temple. It was there that you were present, where you were revealed, where your people met with you. We hold in our hands another place where you were revealed. Your scriptures teach us who you are, what you love, what you hate, what you value, and what you expect of us. We come to your word because we want to know you. And so we ask that you would speak to us, show yourself to us, and help us to leave here knowing you better, we ask, through Christ our Savior. Amen. You may be seated. As we've uh, spent a few weeks now in the Psalms, uh, I'm sure, okay, I hope you've noticed uh, a repeating theme, and it's the fact that God reigns, uh, that he's king and he's sovereign over all creation. Uh, These Psalms, Psalms 93 through 100, we have one more to look at, are called royal psalms. Uh, They're about the reign and the rule of Israel's God. And that theme raises important questions. Questions like, where do we meet this king? How is his kingdom experienced in this world? Uh, Simply put, where do heaven and earth touch? That's the great question that man is constantly trying to answer. Uh, Whether we realize it or not, we're all asking these questions. And much of our lives are organized around how we believe they're answered. We put much time and energy and thought where we see heaven and earth touch. That image of heaven and earth touching is a repeating theme in scripture. It is this desire that lay behind the building of the Tower of Babel when man thought in his ambition that that he could build his own bridge between heaven and earth through his kingdom building uh, efforts. We see a very different approach to it, but similar in some ways 
God's version of it in Jacob's dream when he sees a ladder going between heaven and earth and the angels ascending and descending on it. It's that imagery that comes up in our psalm in verse 5 when God talks about his footstool. That image of the footstool shows up through scripture and the idea is God's legs descending from heaven and taking firm uh, residence on earth. Uh, His footstool is where he stands on earth, where heaven and earth touch. And it was usually on a mountain. Uh, The mountains, uh, sometimes in the poetic imagery, taking up the image of God's feet, firmly planted where God's people can come and meet with their God. That's why our uh, church logo that we chose is a mountain, because it's that theme in scripture where God's people and God meet. That's why it's on our bulletin cover. Eventually, that footstool came to be located on the Temple Mount called Mount Zion, uh, where God had uh, his house built, first a tent and then a temple under Solomon. Uh, It was sort of a mount, really it was a hill in Jerusalem, but they called it Mount Zion. God's holy mountain is what verse 8 in our psalm calls it. The temple was God's footstool where he touched earth, where his kingdom was experienced. And at the center of that temple, at the center, the very core, was a room called the Holy of Holies. And within that Holy of Holies was the Ark of the Covenant, or the Ark of the Testimony. And on that Ark was the mercy seat where God said he would meet with his people. And so in verse 1 of our psalm, when it says God is enthroned above the cherubim, it's referring to the mercy seat. And that's what we want to look at today, that imagery. We really want to ask and answer three questions. What is the mercy seat? What is holiness? And why is it called the mercy seat. Those are the three questions we want to look at uh, today. And my hope is that through all of this, we will see that, that God's kingdom is one of justice and mercy, and that it's experienced in Jesus Christ. That's really the whole hope of looking at Psalm 99 uh, this morning. So let's look at that first question that we need to answer. What is the mercy seat? It's the name given to the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark was a box made of wood, overlaid with gold. Uh, in it were the, the two tables of the covenant, the, uh, the Ten Commandments. Uh, also things like Aaron's staff, which budded, and uh, some remnants of the manna that Israel had collected in the wilderness. And on the lid, uh, at either end, were two cherubim, angelic warriors. Uh, the cherubim were what was stationed outside the Garden of Eden after Adam and Eve sinned and were cast out. They were the ones holding those fiery swords, going in every direction, daring anyone to try to enter that garden without permission. These were not your Christian boutique cherubs. They were not chubby, uh, carrying harps. They were uh, tear-inducing, fiery sword-wielding warriors from heaven. 
That's why they were stationed at the Garden of Eden, because that's where God's presence was known at creation. That's where heaven and earth touched at creation. And nothing unclean can enter into God's presence. Nothing unworthy can draw near. Because he's too good, he's too righteous, he's too holy. We'll talk a little bit more about what it means to be holy in a few minutes. But it was the job of the angels to guard that presence. One glimpse of these angels would turn your insides to jello. So when the temple was constructed as as God's dwelling place in Israel, it was inevitable that the angels that guard his presence, invisible to human eyes, should be made visible through the architecture and the decorations of the temple. And because it was at the center of the lid where God's presence was most specifically revealed, it had to be surrounded by two cherubim guarding the holy presence. God had said, I will meet with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the Ark of the Testimony. That's where he met with his people most uniquely, most specifically. That was the most holy place. And it reflected back to the Garden of Eden and what it meant to approach God's presence there. But as important as that image of of the Garden of Eden is, there is one image that Scripture gives us that's even more important. That image painted of drawing near to the mercy seat in in our psalm, that our psalm has this uh, uh, various images attached to it. Like verse 7, there's a cloud. Uh, In verse 1, the earth shakes, there's trembling. In verses 3, 5, and 9, there is a threefold declaration of God's holiness. We heard something just like that in our call to worship this morning. When God called the prophet Isaiah... To serve as a prophet, he he called him into his heavenly throne room and he gave him a glimpse of that heavenly reality, the throne room of God. There God sat on his throne. He was surrounded by angels and and they called out three times, holy, 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 and the ground shook. The point that Psalm 99 is making is is that the the heavenly throne room that Isaiah entered into and saw with his own eyes was copied in the temple architecture in order to connect that heavenly reality with God's people on earth. To enter into the Holy of Holies was, was to enter into God's throne room. It was there that heaven stooped down and it touched the earth. And as they entered, they stood before the God of heaven. And what did they find? Holiness. A holy God on a holy mountain. But that just drives us back to that second question. What is holiness? Holiness, I think, is one of those subjects that we Christians uh, love to talk about and think we understand until someone comes along and says, can you define that for me? Sometimes we confuse it with goodness and purity. 
And while it certainly includes those, we need to be careful not to think of of holiness as the opposite of evil. In other words, when God says, this is my holy mountain, he's not saying, and all the other mountains are evil. That's not what he's saying. Rather, holy means separate, other, different. To say that God is holy is to say that he is different, that he is other. To say he is three times holy was the Hebrew way of saying he is the otherest of the others. He's in a class all his own. He's separate from this fallen world and he is unstained by its sin and its ugliness. God is not like us, fallen and corrupted and corruptible. Holiness is that quality of unassailability, that incorruptibility. And to be in the presence of such holiness is absolutely unnerving. Have you ever known someone who has one of those stares that can pierce you? Someone who didn't just see you, but who sees through you? As if that person knows your thoughts, your secrets, your hidden sins, and your shame. That no word needs to be spoken. And any word you try to speak is only going to make it worse. One of my favorite scenes in the Chronicles of Narnia is in Prince Caspian where uh, Lucy... uh, as they're, as they're trying to find their way uh, to, to all the Narnians, she sees Aslan across a ravine. And the others don't. And Lucy knows that Aslan wants her to follow her. But the others don't want to go. And she, she can't convince them. So she just relents and she follows them instead of Aslan. And the next morning she wakes up before the others and she meets the lion. Lucy, he said, we must not lie here for long. You have work at hand and much time has been lost. Yes, wasn't it a shame, said Lucy. I I saw you all right. They wouldn't believe me. They're also, from somewhere deep inside Aslan's body, there came the faintest suggestion of a growl. I'm sorry, said Lucy who understood some of his moods. I didn't mean to start slinging the others, but it wasn't my fault, was it? The lion looked straight into her eyes. Oh, Aslan, said Lucy, you don't mean it was. How could I? I couldn't have left the others and come to you alone, could I? Don't look at me like that. Oh, well, I suppose I could. Lewis catches, captures that idea that without a word, he pierces her soul. And she goes from blaming the others to repenting. Just a look. An inscrutable look that says, Lucy, I know you. And you know I know you. And it laid bare everything. And all her excuses were exposed for this facade that they were. That's Lewis trying to describe holiness. It's a light so bright that that no blemish can hide from it. It's a purity so pure that the slightest contaminant not only screams to be noticed, but begs to be removed. 
Absolute righteousness, verse 4. Pure justice, verse 4. True equity. It looks so penetrating that you could be clothed in a thousand layers and you would feel naked before it. To be in the presence of holiness is to be undone. Every complaint you think you have, every excuse that you think makes sense evaporates like that. Every judgment you make about your fellow man disappears at the overwhelming sense of your own guilt. When Isaiah experienced it, he called down curses on his own head. When Peter experienced it, he begged Jesus to leave him because Jesus' presence exposed his sin and he couldn't avoid it. Job, when he was confronted with God's holiness, stopped speaking and he confessed, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I heard of you by my hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. That's holiness. Holiness is not something we see in the light. It's the light by which we see all other things for what they really are. And that's what Psalm 99 is about. And that's what God's people came face to face with as they approached the mercy seat and the God who met with them from above the cherubim. They were to praise his great and awesome name, verse 3. They were to worship at his footstool, verse 5. That's worship in the temple. That's what they received when they came to Jerusalem and ascended Mount Zion. But what about us? We don't have a temple to enter into. We're separated by time, geography, culture, language. And we left, we're left asking, how does Psalm 99 speak to us? Listen to how Hebrews describes what happens when we enter into worship like we are right now. It says this, You have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Hebrews says that when you come into worship, you don't come to Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but you come to the heavenly Mount Zion of which the Temple Mount in Jerusalem was a picture. You don't approach golden statues of angels, but actual angels, invisibles to your eye, attend the service. But most importantly, when you come, you come and you meet with the God that is above the cherubim, the judge of all the earth. In worship, we meet the holy God in his heavenly throne room. The worship service is the footstool of the holy God. This is where heaven touches earth. It's where we meet with the king and it's where we experience his kingdom. Is it any wonder then that the writer of Hebrews goes on a few verses later and says, So let us offer up to our God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God as a consuming fire. 
That's what it means to approach the holy God. And so we have the question to the ans- uh, we have we have the question to the answer. We have the answers to the questions that we began with. Where do we meet the king? How is his kingdom experienced in this world? Where do heaven and earth touch? It's when we gather as his people and meet him in worship. Between his call to worship and his dismissal, we stand in the presence of holiness before the king of heaven. But now that we understand what that means, we're not so sure it's the blessing we want. Because do we really want to be in the presence of a light so bright, so pure, that no blemish can hide from it? A purity so pure that the slightest contaminant begs to be discovered and removed? Do we really want to be in the presence of absolute righteousness, perfect justice, and true equity? Do we want to be before a look so penetrating that you could be clothed with a thousand layers but feel naked and exposed before it? Because to be known by God is to be naked, laid bare. And we ask, what hope is there? But that brings us to our final question. Why is it called the mercy seat? It's called the mercy seat because that's where God's people found mercy. The law below, <laughs> exposing our sin, our unworthiness, our, our need. God above, perfect, uh, inscrutable, unapproachable, holy And in between the two, the mercy seat, where the blood of the sacrifice was poured, where the substitute was poured out, its life offered in our place, the death of one in the place of another. It's called the mercy seat because it's where the blood of the substitute was offered for the salvation of the sinner. And it's from there then that God's people would hear that beautiful word of forgiveness from the God who was above the cherubim. I have accepted the life of another in your place. Your debt is paid. Your sins are forgiven. And yet, there's one other thing the book of Hebrews tells us. And it's this, that the blood of bulls and goats can't actually take away sin. Because the life of the substitute, the life offered in our place, has to be worth at least as much as the life it's substituting for. And that's why we need Jesus. When Jesus had been offered up, his life in our place on the cross, they took him down from the cross and they laid him in a tomb on a stone bench. That Sunday morning, Mary Magdalene entered into the tomb and the bench was empty except for a few things. The grave clothes, which he had been buried in, were still there, neatly folded on the bench. And do you remember what she saw on either side? Two angels facing each other. An exact copy of the mercy seat. Or was the mercy seat a copy of this? 
was this, the true mercy seat, where the true sacrifice which could bring forgiveness was offered. Real angels stood protecting God's holiness and the final and complete word of forgiveness finally spoken between them. You see, Jesus' response to holiness and our sin was not to call down curses on our head, but to call down curses on his own head and to stand between the sinner and the judgment and intercede for us. And so Hebrew tells us that there's one more thing we find in worship, and it's Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood which speaks a better word. The final word of forgiveness. Really, that's where heaven and earth touch in Jesus Christ. We see our King no more clearly than we do on the cross. His kingdom proclaimed to us is done so in the preaching of the cross. And that that kingdom proclamation, the word of his kingdom, the the preaching of the cross, it transforms us. When Psalm 99 talks about Moses and Aaron and Samuel who called on the name of the Lord in verse 6, it's thinking of men who interceded for God's people, even asking that they be blotted out if it would mean grace for the others. These men were being shaped by their king. And God heard their words and spoke forgiveness. When we gather for worship every Sunday, it's, it's not just to touch heaven and meet with the king, it's to be transformed. To be shaped by that kingdom and, and to be made more like its king. To become more loving and sacrificial and serving more honest about your sins than the sins of others. Interceding and and seeking the good of others, praying for their forgiveness. This is what happens to those who touch heaven, those who see the king and hear him speak from between the angels. He speaks to us in his word. And he speaks to us in the Lord's Supper, which is set before us today. Where we witness the greatest act of our king made visible. Between our sin and his holiness, he offered his own blood. To bridge the gap between heaven and earth. And as often as we receive this meal, we proclaim his death and we affirm our only hope. We confess our faith and our dependence upon him. And we hear him speak a better word, a word of final, complete, and perfect forgiveness. He tells us that a way has been made into heaven. That he is where heaven and earth touch and meet, and all who come to him are citizens of heaven. He tells us our sins are forgiven, our naked shame covered in his own righteousness, exposed no more. We hear those sweetest words that Isaiah heard. 
your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I'd like to ask the elders to come forward that we might receive this meal this morning. And please pray with me. Lord, you reign and you are holy, holy, holy. You're enthroned among the angels, not just gold statues, but terrifying messengers of justice. And we are undone. We are a sinful people. But we have Jesus, whose blood was offered in our place. You submitted him to the angels to rescue us from judgment. And we have a blood that speaks a better word, a word of forgiveness, a word of completion. In Jesus Christ, we know forgiveness, we know peace, we know mercy. And so we praise you, we exalt you, and we long to be like you, interceding for others, seeking their forgiveness, that they might know the mercy that we have come to know. Use us, we pray, in calling many to know such peace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.